Well, good evening. Good to, yeah, yeah. No, honestly, you think I should keep this statue right here? You think that'd be wise? Or you, let's raise this up before somebody gets a picture of that. Um, it's truly an honor to be with you. Uh, and in all seriousness, uh, call me by the name that my mother gave me, and that's Mike. Uh, Mike is acceptable. Michael is fine. Uh, dude is fine. Uh, just don't call me Mikey. That's a name from childhood. So uh, thanks again for the opportunity to be with you all tonight. want to just take a couple moments to introduce my family. I'll do this one time. It'll be uh, tonight. And uh, then give a very fast overview of, of our ministries and the ministry that I represent and that God has, has led us to in this transition. So you may be asking, what, what does a national rep do? What is his responsibilities? And, you know, I've only been on the job about three weeks, so I'm learning what those responsibilities are too. So let me give you just a, a quick overview. I'd love for you to uh, get to know my wife, Christina. She is here tonight. Hon, if you could stand real quick. This is my lovely wife, Christina. We've been married for 22 years. Our son, Joseph, is with us. Joseph will be attending uh, Vermilion uh, Community College up in northern Minnesota. He has one more year of eligibility to play football at the JUCO level, then we'll be transitioning next semester to a, a four-year university. And our daughter, Hannah, is a senior in high school. She is 17 years of age, and she's going to be uh, staying in Mount Pleasant for her senior year. She was just home this weekend. That's why we weren't here uh, last night or this morning, we were seeing our daughter off. She was home with us for the weekend. We wanted to spend some time with her. And uh, so she's going to be staying with a the family there. Wanted her to finish her senior year of high school there in Mount Pleasant. She's involved with volleyball, soccer, band, and a number of other things. And she was just here a couple of weeks ago at a senior high camp. And God did a great work in her life and a number of other young people's lives as well. Another thing, just a, a little bit about the ministry that I'm involved in um, with uh, the GRBC, I want to just go back and show you this slide here. If you look at a number of the, the, this is kind of the branding, the logos that are there, here's basically what we are as a fellowship of churches. We are a part of a fellowship of, of autonomous local Baptist churches that partner together or fellowship together that are not a denomination. We do not pay any denominational dues or fees. We have no ownership over any local church. It is completely voluntary. And the thing that unites us together is a doctrinal statement. We agree together wholeheartedly with a doctrinal statement. So churches, we have all, all other associations like some colleges, camps like this one, other mission agencies that uh, agree with our doctrinal statement. And uh, they partner with us in many different ministry venues and endeavors. And we also have here, I want you to notice kind of in the middle there, you have, you have the GARB logo on the far left. Then you have the chaplaincy. We have uh, GRBC-endorsed chaplains. We often think of the military with chaplaincy, and that's true. That's, that's, that's right, and, and that's normally where our minds go. And we have a lot of... Uh, GRBC-endorsed chaplains, but we also have chaplains with sports teams, with those who work in the hospitals, those with fire departments, and in other different 
uh, venues where God sends people, and also our international partnerships, our Baptist Builders Club, which is very relevant for here in the state of Iowa. Uh, this past week, we were just able to uh, write a check for $20,000 to Ankeny Baptist Church for uh, some of the flood damage that they had in their church building. And uh, so we praise God for that and the work we have uh, involved with uh, helping with disaster relief, uh, giving grants and loans to churches that start up, and um, also helping with church planning and revitalization. And then lastly, most of you are familiar with, I think, our publishing arm, RBP. And the thing we're grateful with that is you can trust what we publish because it's all within the framework of our very rigid doctrinal statement. So that's kind of the overview of, of our ministry. I oversee all of that, travel to different churches, different ministry contexts, and uh, we're grateful that God has led us into this opportunity. The last time I preached in the state of Iowa, it was kind of a sad day, kind of a heartbreaking day as we were leaving our church in Mount Pleasant, but we're thankful to be back here, uh, back at a camp that uh, means a lot to us personally, that's had a great impact in our lives, in our children's lives, and um, Pastor Phil, we praise God for you and the leadership here, and Pastor Dave, and all of you who work and serve here, and uh, thank you for, for the great work you do here at, at IRBC. That's all I'm going to say about that. Now we're going to dive into the Word. Go ahead and grab your Bible, turn to John chapter 13 if you would. We're going to look at the Upper Room Discourse this week, and I'm going to speak, Lord willing, five times. And we're going to get to chapter 14. That's as far as we're going to get in the text. And what we're going to do is this. We're going to look at the point that Jesus made the last night he was here on earth. The last night he was here before he would die on the cross. And here's the point that Jesus made. And this is important for us to understand. And this is difficult for us to wrap our brains around. Where he said something to this effect you are better off if I leave. You are better off if I go away. Now, now are we really better off that Jesus left this earth and has, has risen again from the dead and has ascended up into heaven? That's the point Jesus is going to make in John chapter 13 through 17. The last night he would be with his disciples, the night before in which he would die, what do we find the Son of God doing? Here's what you find him doing. He's serving. He's encouraging. He's blessing others. He's investing into the lives of the men that he gave his life to. It was said of the great reformer Martin Luther, who was speaking at a funeral of a man by the name of Nicholas Hausman in 1522. He stood up and gave one simple eulogy of this man What we preach, this man lived. What we preach, this man lived. And here's the great truth about our glorious Savior. All the ideals we have to be loving people, patient people, giving, sacrificial, to be holy and pure, to be conformed into the image of Christ, this is what Jesus lived when he was here on earth. And he lived it perfectly. And this passage will demonstrate that Jesus lived this to perfection in the area of being a servant. So here's what he will do the last night of his life. He'll demonstrate what it means to be a real servant. Then he'll talk about our credibility to the world, that we don't have any credibility before a lost and dying world if we don't really love one another. 
Then he'll comfort their hearts and he'll, he'll tell them, look, don't be troubled about all the things I'm telling you. Please, don't be scared, don't be troubled, don't be fearful. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And he would die on the cross for our sins and rise again from the dead to make a way for sinful people like us to be redeemed. And then he would say, in this world of turmoil and trouble and pain and sorrow and grief, you can have peace. Then you get to chapter 15, we find our power source for all of this. How can I live this way? Where's the strength? Where's the resource to live this way? And Jesus says, I'm the vine. I am the true vine. You are the branches. And you get to chapter 16, Jesus will point out that the spirit of truth will come. And the spirit of God who lives inside of every true believer will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he closes the section with the longest prayer in the New Testament, the great high priestly prayer of Christ in John chapter 17. Most call this the Last Supper, but what you really should call it biblically when you look at the text is the Last Passover. Jesus here gathering with his disciples gives the last of three great discourses. You have Matthew 5 through 7, the, the Sermon on the Mount. You have the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 through 25, talking about uh, Jesus returning to this earth at his second coming. And then you have here the Upper Room Discourse. And here's what we're going to center the sermon around, where Jesus unveils himself as our great high priest. Here's the, the one central truth you want to orbit everything around today is this. Jesus served us so that we would also serve others. Jesus served us so that we would now serve others. And the text we'll examine today will basically give you three casts of characters. You have Jesus, the perfect, holy Son of God. You have Judas, who is really the demonic betrayer, the devilish betrayer, who would turn on Christ. You have Peter, who's, who's a well-meaning guy, misunderstood in, in many ways the way he took Jesus' words, well-meaning but misunderstanding what Jesus would say. And here's this perfect example of a humble, gracious, loving, glorious Savior, truly God, truly man, who would stoop down to serve others. To who did he serve? It's undeserving sinners, like us, like me, like you. And let's unpack here what Jesus does in this passage. And, and I look at this and I ask, why is this passage so powerful? Why is this so impactful in our lives? He doesn't walk on water. He doesn't raise anybody from the dead. He doesn't feed several thousand people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. He doesn't give sight to a man who was born blind. What does he do here? that is so impactful and speaks to our hearts from God's word in such a powerful way. Here's what he does. He serves. He humbly serves. And you're going to find here what a great impact that has on people's lives. Look at verses 1 through 2, and I want to see what Jesus' actions here reveal about his character. So all of our actions speak something about our character, our words, our actions, what we do, even what we do not do, that speaks about our character. So what does this say about Jesus' character and the way that he serves? First thing is this. Jesus' actions demonstrate his love and his selflessness. Look with me, if you would, at verse 1. Now, 
Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Now, take a look again at verse 1, if you would. I want you to notice something here in the text that's important if you're going to understand really where Jesus is going with this and what John wants his audience to get. Notice these words here, his hour in verse 1. There's one major purpose for why Jesus would come and why God would take upon flesh at the incarnation, and it's this, so he would die. That's the major purpose. He would come to die on the cross. And John points out his hour, his hour where he would die as a, as a perfect sinless sacrifice for our sins, where he would be buried, where he would rise again from the dead. He would willingly submit himself to a cruel death on the cross, shed his blood, die in our place as an all-atoning sacrifice, be buried, rise again from the dead, ascend up into heaven, intercede for us as our great high priest, and one day he is going to return for his church. If you notice the words in verse 1, he loved them to the end. In the Greek, this really means to the uttermost. He loved them to the uttermost. What is the greatest kind of love you could ever show a person. Think about that for a moment. The greatest kind of love you could ever show to another individual. I believe it's this. It's to go from the highest place to go down to the lowest people and to take the lowest people and bring them up to the highest place. That's what Jesus did for us. He left the highest place and he went to the lowliest of low people. That's us to bring us to the highest place, and that is to be his children. And that's to know him forever. And if you notice in verse 2, despite the fact that he would be betrayed by Judas, whose heart Satan had filled, this never goes beyond God's sovereign plan. It all falls under the canopy of divine providence. And if you notice here the contrast in these verses, here's the deep love and the grace and the mercy and the humility of the Son of God serving his disciples. And here you find the self-centeredness and really the demonic action of Judas Iscariot betraying the Son of God. And the mind of Christ, if you think of Philippians 2, always considers the other person, what? More important than ourselves. Satan is only interested in prideful things. So how do I know if I'm doing what the enemy wants me to do? I'm only thinking about myself then. I'm only thinking about what serves me. I'm only thinking about what exalts me. So to be Christ-like means this, you serve others. You want to be Christ-like? We must serve others. So it happens when you do this. If that be your spouse, might be your children, might be your parents, might be your grandparents, it might be an elderly church member might be somebody here at camp. It might be somebody you know who cannot mow their lawn anymore. It might be somebody you know who used to be able to drive themselves to the doctor. Now they can't do that anymore. It simply means this. I want to first please God. Then in response to pleasing God, 
I want to serve others. I want to have a servant's heart. To serve only yourself. To avoid any type of sacrificial service. To never get your hands dirty, spiritually speaking. To never really invest in other people. And realizing every life you invest in is going to be messy to some extent. To never sacrificially serve, friend, is to not be like Christ. It's to not be like our Savior. It's to say this, I think of me first, what pleases me, what gets me ahead, what elevates me. What do Jesus' actions speak about his character? Let's look at a second thought with this. His actions also demonstrate humility in a, in a servant's heart. Let's pick it up in verse 4, if you would. We're going to read down to verse 11. And the Word of God says this, He rose up from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. In Jewish culture, just as it would be in our culture today, if, if a man were to walk around in sandals all day, especially in the ancient Near East and the Middle East, he would get on his feet all kinds of things that you know, were yucky, dirty, gross, and disgusting. But more importantly, there would be all kinds of things on his feet that would be forbidden by Levitical law. They weren't allowed to touch these things, much less clean these things. That's why those who read this passage for the first time, who would primarily probably be a Jewish audience, when they read this for the first time, friends, they would have been stunned. You and I see this and say, great, it's wonderful. Jesus is washing the feet of other people. Put your first century glasses on just for a moment and think of how those who knew the Old Testament really well and lived by the Old Testament or tried to, when they read this, they would have been shocked. Like, what? A Jewish man doing the work of a Gentile washing the feet of other Jewish men. And here's the great high priest. You notice in verse 4, lays aside his garments... And he takes the towel of a lowly servant, and he does the unthinkable here. He washes their feet. Friends, this was a culture that highly prized social status and standing, kind of like the American culture we live in today. Everybody loves their titles. They like everybody to know their titles. And for them, it's perhaps a way of significance and importance. And here's the Son of God. In this culture, touching feet that somebody would consider this is something only a Gentile slave would do. What does Jesus do with the towel? You know, I don't know how you are. I'm kind of a germaphobe. I use something once. I don't like to use it again. Jesus takes this towel. What does he do? 
the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords takes a towel and he washes his disciples' feet. A good way to understand this passage so it could really hit home, I'd encourage you, take this passage and lay it parallel with Philippians chapter 2. And think of Christ, the servant who made himself nothing, but took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what Jesus does here practically, Paul explains theologically. And so Jesus takes that theological truth and he applies it here in this situation. And then you look at verses 6 through 7. Here's what Peter does so often when you find in the Gospels. Here's a guy who ruins a perfectly good sermon illustration. He totally ruins it here. But there's something here he's not getting. He doesn't get it now, but here's what you find. This is a more immature version of Peter. Later on, he's going to get it. Later on, he's going to understand this. And from verses 8 through 9, you find here Peter kind of juxtaposes his position and he says, okay, well, don't wash my feet, but wash my whole body. And Jesus responds by saying something important. That if you don't get this, you really won't get the text. He says, you're already clean, Peter. You're clean. You're clean because of who? And I believe that Jesus here is referencing, he's using a physical illustration to drive home a spiritual reality. Peter, you're already cleansed of your filth. You're already clean. And so Jesus, in verses 10 through 11, he interprets the whole thing for us. And he says this in so many words. He makes it clear here. The foot washing has a deeper meaning. It's more than just personal hygiene here. There's a spiritual truth he's trying to get home. It's signified cleansing. Now ask yourself your, this question from the text. Who does the cleansing? Who is it, friends? It's Jesus. It's Jesus who does the cleansing. Jesus who does the foot washing. In humble love, Jesus serves his followers. Friends, not because he needs them, but because they because we need him and because he loves them. Even though the disciples are struggling here with some understanding, they're not quite grasping or processing his words or his actions, Jesus knew exactly what was going on in their hearts. And something important to understand about Jesus and him being the divine son of God, when he spoke to people, when he saw people, you find this at the end of John chapter 2, he knew what was in the hearts of all men. Pastorally speaking, pastors, wouldn't that be an awesome gift from God if you knew the hearts of every single person you talked to? Jesus did. He does. He saw right through them. He knew who would betray him. He knew exactly who would understand this and get this. See, this is what Peter saw here. He saw dirty feet and he saw the Son of God washing them. And Jesus wanted his followers to understand something a little deeper here. He wanted them to understand, unless someone is served by Jesus, they have no part with him. Unless someone is served by him, and the fact that they understand what he did for them on the cross, that he shed his blood for our sins, and he rose again from the dead, they have no part in his salvation. And this is what the world constantly says, and we fight this even as believers. The world constantly says this, look who serves me. 
Look what others do for me. Look at my status. Look at my followers. Look at people who recognize me. Look what they do for me. But the Christian's greatest boast is not, look what others do for me. The Christian's greatest boast is, look what Christ has done for me. And that's why we would say, God forbid that I should boast. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world's been crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Our greatest boast is look what Christ has done for us. Draws my mind back to Mark chapter 10. I'll not have you turn there, but in that narrative, you find Jesus' disciples kind of jockeying for a position. Who's going to sit on your right hand? And I'll sit on your left hand. And what does Jesus say there? As a Cubs fan, a lifelong Cubs fan, I took great comfort in these verses for a while. He says, the last will be first. And I thought maybe that came to fruition in 2016, but that's probably really bad hermeneutics there. But he says, the last will be first. And the greatest of you must be what, friends? Your servant. Then he says in Mark 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. So husbands, you want to be a good husband? You want to be a godly husband? We have to learn how to serve. Pastors, if we're going to serve effectively, we have to know what it means to really sacrificially serve. If we're going to be effective parents, we have to learn how to serve our children and be gracious and kind, yet at the same time very generous and bold enough to speak the truth in love. You want to be a good church member in your church? How many of you would say, I want to be a good church member in my church? Let me see your hands. Okay, there's five of you. Okay, more of your (laughs) hands here. Just want to make sure you're awake. You want to be a good church member? Serve. Learn what it means to serve. I was reading recently a, a young man by the name of Costi Hinn. That's not a name you're going to recognize here, but you would probably, probably recognize who his uncle is. His uncle is the heretical health and wealth prosperity preacher, Benny Hinn. Costi Hinn, several years ago, just came to know Christ. He's an associate pastor in a really solid church in Southern California. And God has really changed his life. He's recently written a book that kind of exposes the heirs biblically of the health and wealth prosperity gospel. He recently gave, uh, wrote an interesting piece on what it means to be a servant. I want you to listen to these words because he came out of a culture that taught if you're not rich, if you're not healthy, and your bank account isn't growing, there's something not right about your walk with the Lord. But he contradicts that biblically and says, look, if you want to be great, You have to learn how to serve. Listen to these words. Greatness isn't doing ministry from an ivory tower. Greatness is bowing low to wash feet. Ministry is messy. And Jesus knew we would all long for clear calendars, simple churches, well-behaved congregations that never interrupt our day. So he showed us a better way. Dirty, smelly, crooked, cracked feet are the key. Even for those 
who make our lives difficult. When no one is watching, when no one washes our feet, greatness is grabbing a towel. Greatness is in serving. And this is what Jesus wanted to get across to his disciples here. Look, you're better off if I go away. And the spirit of truth will come. But here's what I want you to get. Before I go and I die on the cross and I rise again from the dead and I ascend up into heaven, I want you to get this. You must understand what it means to be a servant. And Jesus didn't just talk about it. He exemplified it. Let's look at the next point here that brings us to the next paragraph we're going to look at now. Jesus' actions reveal an example for you to follow. Look at verse 11, if you would, or let's pick it up in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done for you? Look at verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher, if, you're, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, and that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Notice the text in verse 12 again, if you would. He asks an important question here. Do you understand? Do you get this? Do you, do you comprehend this? Jesus was a, was a teacher in the sense that he taught, and that's important. He conveyed truth. But biblical truth does more than that. It aims for the heart. And Jesus not only taught, one thing you find in this passage and scores of others, he exemplified. He demonstrated how this is going to be lived out. None of this means a thing. That's what Jesus says in so many words. If this is not applied to our lives. And this is what Jesus says here. If me as your master, if I'm doing this, and I'm willing to bend down and wash your feet, you ought to be willing to do this for one another. This ought to be a part of your life. This is so much more than just biblical facts that get absorbed into our head. If, if I'm doing this, then you serving one another should never, never, never be beneath you. This ought to characterize our lives. So let me illustrate this. If you were to say you're a Christian tonight, and you have never truly repented of your sin, and you've never had a time in your life, whether as a child, a teenager, like it was for me when I was 17 years of age, maybe as an adult, an older person, but there's never been a time, some sort of time frame you could point to where you have turned from your sin and you have turned to Christ alone, to Jesus Christ alone, not a church, not a baptism, not your good works, not anything you've earned, but to Jesus Christ alone. And you trust 
in what he did on the cross, that he shed his blood for our sins, and you believe in your heart that he has risen again from the dead, and by grace you have called out to him, and, and, and maybe this was in the context of a church service, maybe somebody led you to Christ, maybe you were listening to a sermon and sitting there in a pew one day, you came to faith in Christ, but you have never personally come to faith in Christ. To say you're a Christian and not be trusting in Christ alone is a contradiction in terms. But not only that, it's this. If we say we are a blood-bought child of God, and we say that we've been risen to walk in newness of life and our sins are forgiven, but we don't serve, friends, biblically speaking, that's a contradiction in terms. It contradicts who we really are in Christ. And to say you're a Christian and to say serving just isn't for me, that's not my calling, friend. There's no biblical justification for that. Let me make some bold statements to you. And I say these in love, but to not serve is to not be like Jesus. If, if we call ourselves a Christian and, and we don't serve, there, there's a good reason why we would not serve. It's because we think too highly of ourselves. True greatness is not found in how many people follow you or serve you or look up to you. True greatness is found with a Christ-like heart and a Christ-like attitude that looks to serve others and not just serve them, but with pure motives that wants to glorify God and encourage others and bless others and help others with an expectation of nothing in return. Not wanting anything back from anyone else. And I ask you this. Ask yourself this, and I'm asking myself this as well. Are you a Christ-like servant? Are you a Christ-like servant? Do you sincerely desire to serve the Lord? And, and I'd ask you this. Who do you serve right now? And you think of like just taking spiritual inventory of your life. Who do you serve right now? who could never pay you back for what you're doing for them. Who are you serving? And look at verse 17, because I think this is the whole key to understanding this text. The whole point of the passage, I think, culminates in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now ask yourself this question. What makes you happy? The word blessed here simply means happy. This is the fruit. This is the result. This is what comes, the response to serving the Lord and, and serving others. It's blessedness. It's being happy. So how can you be blessed? How can you be happy? Jesus says you must know. What are you supposed to know? I think it's a foregone conclusion. You have to understand the gospel, the good news of Christ. And once you understand that, this is where it begins, you have to know yourself. Why am I here? Why did God make me? Why am I here in this world? What's the purpose of my life? And Paul clues us into this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I want you to pay attention to that word workmanship. Let's read this together. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What was the purpose of Jesus' life? How did Jesus live his life? How did Jesus serve others? How did Jesus respond to his enemies? What kept Jesus 
from wasting his life. And then Jesus ties knowing with an important word here, do. Doing. What should we be doing? What is this chapter all about? What's the immediate context of this? How would his original audience have understood this? What were they thinking? What were they seeing? What was the example right before them? It's service. It's service. Friends, blessed are you if you know these things, and it doesn't stop there. What does he say after that? And do them. Now he expects his followers to do the same. Here's the point with all of this. In order for you, as a redeemed, forgiven, raised to walk in newness of life, child of God, to really understand what it means to be blessed, it doesn't just come from knowing. We have to take that knowledge, and we have got to put that into action. And if you're a child of God, being a servant is not optional. Let's look at some other passages here where Jesus talks about this, and in other passages where Scripture admonishes us not just to know, but to also do. Look at the words of Jesus in John 20, verse 21. Let's read this together. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. James 1, verse 22. Let's read together. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Look at James 4, 19. Let's read together. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. And friends, at a camp like this, where you hear a lot of Bible preaching, and there's a lot of Bible knowledge, and there's tons of resources, praise God for that, and solid materials. Most of us, I wouldn't say, have a knowledge issue. We know what's right. But I think where we struggle on a day-to-day basis, it might be a serving issue. Will I serve? Will I have a Christ-like attitude when I serve? And if biblical knowledge is not translating into biblical serving, then here's what's happening. There's a disconnect from your heart to your head. And one of the longest journeys you're going to have in life is from your head down to your heart. What do I know, and how is that impacting my heart, and how is that changing my life? Now, who knows more about happiness than Jesus? Dr. Phil, Oprah, who knows more about happiness than Jesus? The answer to that, obviously, is no one. But Jesus doesn't tie our happiness into our investment portfolio, our body shape, the amount of hair we have. Praise God for that, right, men? He doesn't tie it into our age, the neighborhood we live in, our salary package. He doesn't tie it into that. Jesus ties it in with this. Blessed are you if you, what, know these things and you do them. Here's what he does. He ties it into your service. How do we serve? And as a Christian friend, we don't serve to be accepted by God. We serve because we are accepted by God. And we don't serve to earn anything from God or earn any of his grace. We serve because we have undeservedly received his grace in Christ. And we don't serve to gain God's mercy. We serve because we've received God's mercy. And Jesus served us in order that we might serve others. He served us so that we might serve others. So young people, children, 
teenagers, college-age adults, those of you who might be newly married, younger families, just starting out with family and having children, those of you who are single but you want to get married and there's a desire in your heart to get married, Uh, those like Christina and I right now entering into a transition in life, grandparents, maybe we have some great-grandparents here, those of you who serve in leadership in your church, do you really want to be happy? We, for years, we had a biblical counseling ministry in our church in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. I've never counseled anybody who walked in my office and said, Pastor Mike, I am meeting with you for the sole purpose of finding out how it is, how I can be an unhappy person. No one has ever met with me and asked that question. But you look all across this world today, this is a very depressing and discouraged culture, is it not? So how do we pursue joy? How do we pursue blessedness? Do we really want to be, look at the verse, verse 17, blessed? Here's what we find. Know Christ, know who you are in Christ, and serve in response to that knowledge. We serve because he served us. We love because he first loved us. And we can say this about Jesus, what Martin Luther said about his friend back in 1522. What Jesus preached, he lived. What Jesus preached, he lived. Let's take a moment now. Let's pray for God's word and his power to really take root in our own hearts and lives. And that the gospel would transform our hearts in such a transformative way that we're not walking hard drives of computer knowledge about the Bible, but that were people who exemplify Christ-likeness with a Christ-like servant's heart. So I'm going to pray for my own heart. I'm going to pray for us collectively, corporately as a group, that God would really transform our hearts and to see how we can, in a very practical way and with pure motives, serve and glorify our great Savior. Let's pray. Precious Father, we love you and we praise you for being such a good and gracious God to us. And we openly confess that sometimes we get angry or disillusioned because people aren't serving us the way we think they should be serving us. And we struggle with selfishness and we, we struggle at times with having unrealistic expectations of people. And we confess that to you. And you are a gracious God and you're forgiving and you're loving and and you're patient with us. So may you find in us, Father, a heart that longs to serve others, a heart that longs to be a blessing to those who realistically could never pay us back. And I pray we would not just demonstrate a servant's heart, but a servant's heart that demonstrates Christ-likeness in our lives. Father, help us as husbands to serve our wives well. May those of us with children serve our children well. May children serve their parents well. And may we serve in our local church as well. Thank you for those, Father, in our lives who've exemplified this so well. And so many of us are here tonight because people have exemplified a servant's heart in our lives. So, Father, may we take this knowledge, may it take root in our hearts, And may it be applied to our lives. 
And thank you that you give us the grace to do that. And we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said together. Amen. Amen.